Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, good Wednesday evening. That was pitiful. Good Wednesday evening. Hey, there we are. Good. It's our last night together before our uh, semester break, which uh, falls uh, relatively early this year, but we started earlier too. Uh, So appreciate y'all being here and being faithful to our study and tracking it. I'm going to have you stand up. Just greet those around you. Reintroduce yourself if you don't know who you're sitting near, and we'll take a moment to, uh, to do that. So is that the most painful thing we do as a church? Yes? You guys are funny. People get like one seat behind them, maybe across a seat, but that's about the level of it. And then they just, my favorite is to see a husband and wife shake hands because they don't know what else to do. I'm assuming it's the first time they've spoken all day. Uh, Well, uh, the text your questions number is up there if you... uh, Want to go ahead and uh, ask any question that's still lingering for you? We'll do our very best at the conclusion. My very thin uh, partner in crime will be up here in just a few moments to wrap this up. Here's how this is going to play tonight. Uh, I'm going to walk you through the eight pieces. Now, I know you're saying we've been doing this for 10 weeks, but we had some Q&As and some, uh, some uh, response time and reaction. And I don't know if you've enjoyed this, and I'm really not asking you for applause or anything, but Michael and I were talking about it today. We really have enjoyed listening to each other teach and being able to respond to it because that just makes all of us better, we think, as teachers as well as the students. Then what we're going to do is after I've walked us through these eight chunks of theology that we've learned about, and I'm just going to review. So if you're a note taker, and it has been, no pun intended, noted that the way we're taking notes differently on Sunday morning has got some of you doubting there is a God. Okay, so we're going to talk about that on Sunday morning. Everyone relax and remedy this. You could even use your journal if you want to think outside of the box for your notes tonight, because what we want you to do is react to what you're hearing. So as we review the eight pieces of theology we've been talking about, I want to highlight some of the things I want you to remember. Act like this is the study session before an exam. Just want to highlight where we've learned and hopefully trigger some memories because some of the things we talked about, believe it or not, we talked about back in August. Now, it's amazing to me that we're in November and we're about to eat turkey. This, this fall went so wonderfully fast. And the fact that it's still summer weather, praise the Lord on that. Can, you know, can I have an amen on that one? Yeah, and then Friday, winter is going to come, so get your flannel sheets out and your thermals because it's supposed to be a high of 52 on Friday horrifying shock to the end of summer. But we're, in the, we're at the end of November, have great weather, and this semester's gone quickly. So some of the things I review, you'll go, huh, I don't remember him saying that. And some of the things we talked about last week. So we'll be briefer as we head toward the conclusion. When we're done with that, Michael's going to come up and take a, a unique perspective on the study. He's going to say, here are some things you personally need to consider. And then following that, we'll get back up together on stage and answer any questions that come in. And if there aren't any questions, we'll make some up, and then we'll be finished. All right, let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll get after our our lesson tonight. God, thank you for your gracious care of us. God, forgive us for the times that we thought we were caring for ourselves, when in reality, you're the one who's provided everything, even our talents and abilities to, to make a living, the opportunities to 
earn money in exchange for food and a shelter and, and opportunities for your kingdom. God, we begin tonight by just wanting to be grateful. And as we've learned about you, God, we haven't even begun to touch the surface of who you are. But thank you for the revelation we do have that teaches us enough to have faith and teaches us enough to know how to live. I'm grateful for Michael's partnership in all of this and and just pray that you bless his preparation and my preparation. And if it's not useful, God, change it so it can be. And uh, unite our hearts tonight around you as we enter our season of gratitude and thankfulness. And uh, for all of these things and so many more that you've blessed us with, we just want to pause and say thank you as we begin. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 1-1, where we began this study, uh, I've berated you with the continuation of this theme that I am absolutely convinced and hope you are now too that one passage of scripture that needs to be read and studied and appreciated is Genesis 1-11. through That's not discounting other passages of Scripture, but telling you that the interpretive lens by which we build our worldview comes from Genesis 1 uh, through 11. And everything from there goes on. Now, I've been surprised. I've been waiting patiently all semester for somebody to, to write me or text me and say, well, this isn't mentioned in Genesis 1 through 11. I was hoping someone would do that so I could use it as an example, but you're all kind and you were nice to me. Now, there are probably some dangling threads of theology that aren't immediately known from these first 11 chapters. But I want you to understand, those are pieces of theology that come from the basic building blocks. So if you were a football team I was coaching, and for the very first time you got to pad up and get ready to play football, before you started hitting each other, there's a few things you'd have to learn. What's the proper technique to safely tackle someone else and safely tackle uh, your own, or protect yourself during a tackle? You know, how do you hold a football when you're about to get hit? What are the rules? What are the sidelines? And if you just look at Genesis 1-11, through 11, I think it's safe to say it is the tenets and fundamental building blocks of all theology. And then the rest of the Bible just allows us to extrapolate on that and go. So that's the one thing I wanted you to get from day one. And we broke that down into bite-sized pieces. And uh, this is where I became convinced that this matters. But Genesis 1-1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's two very fundamental truths that we have to remind ourselves of. This verse, without being dramatic, sets the context for everything we're to understand about ourselves and God. One verse. I believe it's the most important verse about God we can have. Is that dramatic enough to have your attention? Or some of you sitting there going, I'm going to prove him wrong. That's what I want. Provocation and teaching is important. If I can say something that you come back with, well, I don't know if I believe that. The best part of teaching is when we say, then why? And you come back with an idea. We come back with an idea. And all of us have elevated our game by having that experience. Genesis 1.1 is so important to understand who God is and who we are by this. In the beginning, God. And if you remember what we talked about back in August, and I don't think I do, so I know you don't. Who's there and who isn't? God's been there the whole time, and who's not there? We aren't. So when we look at this, here's the truth of all of this. You define the world by your existence in it or God's pre-existence to it. And isn't that where all idolatry comes from? God is either here for me or I'm here for God. Truthfully, I could drop the mic and we could go in the cafe and see if there's any pizza left. Because if Christians, including myself, got that truth, Michael, you can push back on this if you don't 
like it toward the end, but if we got that point down, do you know how much unity would be found? Do you know how much division would be gone? Do you know how much mission would go on in this world if we understood that the world preexisted us and if the Lord's willing, it's going to go beyond us and eternity is going to be defined by the one who was here the entire time? And it's not you and me. It's God. So what we talked about then were some things about God we need to understand based off of that. First of all, and Michael's already addressed this a couple weeks ago when I was in Japan, when Michael did some summation, he brought some of these points out. So I just want to highlight them if you weren't here and proceed. Uh, He's self-existent or pre-existent. He doesn't need us. He created this world as a blessing to us and a blessing in relationship with him. He doesn't need us. Uh, He's not dependent on us for anything. If you don't love God today, he's not sitting at home feeling empty and broken. Now, it may sound like this sterile God who sits in heaven who has no interest in us. No, not at all. Not at all. It's like, I remember as a kid, it finally dawned on me. I think I was nine or ten years old when my dad took us to Kmart. Now, this will make, uh, well, this is an adult audience. So I'm not that I'm going to tell a bad joke. But anyway, if there were kids in here, they'd have no clue of this. My dad took us to go go, uh, Christmas shopping at Kmart. I, we each had to buy five gifts. I had three brothers, my grandma and grandpa, and that's what we bought presents for. My dad gave me $25, and I could buy five presents at Kmart for $25. And then I remember when I left the house, my mom gave me the psst, called me over, and she gave me $10, and she said, get your dad something. And my dad heard. And it hit me in that moment. My mom just gave me... Now, here's how I saw it, okay? Because my mom was a stay-at-home mom. Please don't judge that. At 9 or 10, perspective's hard to come by. But I thought, mom just gave me dad's money to buy him a present. He probably just wants the 10 bucks back. (laughs) So I often think of God in heaven going, when we worship him and give him gifts, he goes, that's really sweet and I love your heart for it. But truthfully, you're giving me back what I gave you. Now, is that ruin giving? Not at all. How many of you, we refer to this often, how many of you have a terrible drawing or painting on your refrigerator door? Based on art, it's horrible. Based on love, it's what? It's the most beautiful thing ever drawn. I have a, an irregular picture of the Chicago Cubs symbol in my office that Braden painted for me. It will never pass an arts award. You couldn't give me enough money to get that away from me. God is preexistent and he's self-existent which means he's here before us and he made all of this as a gift to us. He's also self-sufficient. He can have have anything he wants without any of us. His creation is perfect and he himself is perfect. And that's why the word, you know, what is it said? um, Is it chapter five, Michael, in Matthew where it says, be perfect as the Lord is perfect. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uses that terminology and we think eliminated, right? Because we define perfection But his perfection is different. It's where the word holiness comes from. He's never been unclean, never been filthy, never been flawed, never been broken, never tainted by sin. He's triune, which we ended with, just to come up with another P, we came up with plural. God is in the form, and I can't explain this, but I believe it. He's in the form of the Holy Spirit. He's in the form of Jesus. He's in the form of God the Father. And all of these things come together perfectly. Now, I know this may be anathema to some people in the room, but if you ever read the book, The Shack, and now let me just say it clearly because I know Christian radio tore the book up. It's allegory. 
It wasn't stating this is the way things are. It was painting a beautiful picture. We don't take out uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. We shouldn't take out the shack. But the thing I loved about it is I loved the fact that God was an overweight black woman who loved jazz music. I was like, that's my God. I dig that. Because it showed just God's love and his nurturing nature and his love for artistry. And it was just, it just did something in my heart that I went, that's just beautiful. Now, if you're saying, you know, some of you will run and say, should we read the shack? No, 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 no. If, if, if that's not your deal, it's not your deal. But that story painted a vision for me that I was like, I love that God. And the interaction between the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and, and God in that depiction just was beautiful. It was, you know, I, I'm easily, I know my, my demeanor doesn't show this, I'm easily touched. When something's real and sentimental, I'll tear up quicker than anybody in this room. And when I read that, I thought, oh, I want it to be that way. Because it was just, it was beautiful. So we learned about God. And then the other thing I want you to remember from the first piece about what we learn about God from Genesis are these two words, forming and filling. If you remember that God formed the earth first three days, and then what did he do in days four, five, and six? He filled it. And the reason I want you to remember this, because I was so mad at myself because I got so happy telling stories about home that I didn't finish when I needed to that night. I want you to remember When God brought you out of sin into life, did he not recreate you the same way? He reformed you, and then he did what? Filled you with what? Spirit and truth. He filled filled you with the words of truth, and he filled you with the Holy Spirit. So, having been saved, formed, if you're empty now, you need to be what? Filled. And what are the two things God fills us with? Truth and spirit. Jesus told us that. Told us that in John 4, the woman at the well. You'll worship me in spirit and in truth. So the forming and filling is our spiritual formation, as found in Genesis chapter 1. Now I'm going to take a big cop out here on part 2 when we talked about Jesus in creation. All I want to say about this piece is he was there. Because it tells us in Colossians And in the Gospel of John, first chapter, he was the one creating. Which is really interesting, because if you want a good controversy, Genesis said God created. John and Colossians say that uh, Jesus created. And the rabbis read in creation that the Holy Spirit, when it says the Spirit hovered, it's actually the Hebrew word for fluttered, creating the picture of a bird. Does that make a lot of sense about when Jesus was baptized and on the Mount of Ascension that the Spirit came down in the form of a dove and what? Fluttered. So the rabbis say the Spirit created. So who did it? God, Jesus, or the Holy Spirit? Go back to plurality. They did. And I think it's okay to use the word they because they didn't separate themselves. They were one. Performing different functions together in unity. So in chapter two, we saw Jesus. I used the six days as I was taught this principle. I used the six days from Frank Viola and Leonard Sweet's book, Jesus of Theography. And it was just powerful how you could see what happened on day one. Jesus emulates in the gospels. And if you, the only way I like, said so the cop out will be, we don't have time to go through it because if I introduce a piece, I have to explain it and we don't have time for all of that. So I'd really encourage if you weren't here for week two to go online and listen to that teaching. It may be worth your time. It may not. Ask someone who is here. 
But if you want to know more about Jesus and creation, I think that's the best uh, way to handle that part. So we go to part three, which was uh, the concept that in the image of God, he created them. So what do we learn about man? We learn that God is self-sufficient, self-existent, all-powerful. We can go on and on. We realize that Jesus Christ was present in creation and that his promise he is alluded to in Genesis 3.15. And then we came to us, man created. You remember I gave you four things about man that you need to remember. And in an age, and I don't want to beat this up, the election's the election's the election. There's going to be a large part of our country who hated either solution and another large part of our country who hated all of it. But the issue today is that we're all talking about is, do we have a leadership that respects humanity? Or do we have a leadership, and I don't mean party, I mean a leadership that respects all humanity. So let's remember these four things. It might be timely. God created every person with dignity. He gave every person a role in dominion. He gave all of us a distinction from all other creation. And he gave us duty. So dignity, dominion, distinction, and duty. Every human being possesses that. Regardless of the color of their skin, regardless of their nation of birth, regardless of their paperwork, everyone has dignity, dominion, distinction, and duty. So how does that affect the church? Michael, I'm going to step into your puddle right now as you come up. I won't stay in here long, but you need to think about that. If the, if the world is questioning, and I, want you to, I hope this encourages you, if the world is questioning whether we have a world that will respect humanity as a whole, there should be one group of people in the world who lead out in that. It should be Christians. The church should be fighting for those that are f- scared to be disenfranchised. And I've heard the debates all week. Listen to a lot of podcasts, been following the news. And there's a lot of debates about, you know, it's really tough for the whites to understand what the Hispanics, or the blacks, or the Muslims are going through. And it's probably some validity to it. But we Christians aren't based on a color of our skin, are we? So if you see someone who's being mistreated and and is not allowed dignity, then who should speak up for that? This is the one thing the gospel has been talking about through all of scripture. The dignity of all mankind is, it's our duty to stand up for that. Everyone matters. Everyone matters. Even the whole issue of abortion is one where dignity of humanity is something that we're trying to get spoken about. All humanity. And so, as we continue, remember those are the traits of humanity. Then I pointed out for you, one of my favorite teachings from Genesis is the six things that humanity has going for it. This is all things that happened before we ruined creation. So we were natural, we were made from the elements. We are spiritual, those elements came to life when the Spirit of God was placed in us. And that's the one thing medicine really can't Beside is when a person's body physically dies, we know that there's a period of time that they can be resuscitated, then we know there's a period of time that they're no longer there. And so that spiritual part, the breath of God in each one of us, and if you go back to the previous points, the distinction we have is that no other creature is created with the soul. So because of that, the spiritual and natural, then we're practical beings, we're rational beings, And we noted that Adam was given the task by God to name the animals, which meant he could reason and make wise decisions and show discernment. And I know, and I get the fact I got this, and it was cute. It was a a very friendly parlay back and forth. 
but someone said they know for sure their dog thinks. And I thought it was, it's funny. Uh, my wife used to think that our dog could think. And, and I kept saying to her, Heather, he doesn't think, he's responding to you. And she was like, no, he understands everything. And she'd look at him, she'd go, you want to go outside? And he'd run to the door and jump straight up. She'd open the door and she'd look at me like, ha. Ah. So I said, okay, let him back in. She let him back in. And I said, hey, Cubby. Yes, our dog was named Cubby. I said, Cubby. And he came over to me. I said, you want to drink motor oil? And he went to the door and he went, poof, straight up and down. <laughs> I said, Heather, he trained us. We didn't train him. He's responding to what? To the benefit of obedience. Well, God made us rational a little bit different. Now, the whole story wasn't to say Heather's dumb. She just didn't have a dog growing up. We had a bunch of them. I'm like, no, no. I think dogs train us. Cubby was dead three years, and I could not eat a sandwich. This is a true story. I couldn't eat a sandwich without keeping a corner piece of crust. And even after he was gone, I would find myself during dinner putting my hand under the table because Heather didn't want me to do that. So I would hide it from her and put it under the table and realize he's not there anymore. Who trained who? Because he'd put his head, he'd put his chin on my knee, and I would just take something off my plate and feed him. I, I said to Heather, did he do that to you? And she's like, yeah, you too. And I thought, oh, who owned who? <laughs> so I'm not saying dogs are dumb, but they're not rational. They, he learned to do that because it worked. And so instinctively, he followed that. So we were told to cultivate and keep the earth. We're rational beings. We're moral beings. We're the, we're the only part of creation I can find all of scripture that God said don't do this and do this and it's based on your obedience and trust in me and then lastly we're social beings so not only did did he give us something to do but the best I can understand the work that God's given us all to do is to be done in community and uh so this is what we learned about ourselves and then I posed the question and I still want you to wrestle with this for the rest of your life you need to Not because there's an answer I want you to find. I just think it's part of who we are. Do we have free will? Or is God directing every step of this? And I think the answer needs to be started in Genesis before we pull out any proof text from other passages and try to make a case. And so those are the things I wanted us to think about. This is what God gave us. All of us were created with dignity, with distinction. We were given duty. All of those things are there for us. And we were part of God's dominion, unlike any other creature. Then, this is what we were like before we ruined it. And how does free will or the lack of free will play into the choice that Adam and Eve made? Then we went to week four and we talked about sin. And what is sin according to scripture? And what is the result of our sin? So if you remember, the point we were trying to make, and I I couldn't... want you to know this is not my original idea, but when I wrote it down, I was dumb and young, and I didn't record who said it, figuring I'd always remember, and then I got old and it stopped remembering. But I love this definition of sin. Sin begins when creator God is challenged by his creation. It's such a simple... Now, I know theologians will bang their heads on the table and say, no, it's deeper than that. Yeah, but this is a good starting spot. I think it is. That sin begins when creator God is challenged by his creation. And so we just talked about what Satan did. Satan's got some pretty uh, effective means of tempting mankind. And I gave you this way. He confuses us. He asks the question, did God really say that? 
causing confusion, and I'll be a preacher unashamed of this next point I'm about to make. If you're not reading the word of God, you're going to have a hard time discerning the will of God. If you don't know what's true, you can't, you can't define what's false. So our world is, even in the church, there's an incredible, and one of the highest literacy rates in all of history's record, we are more ignorant about the Bible than most generations ahead of us, or, uh, yeah, that preceded us. So he confuses us. He gives a caricature of God. In other words, he says, has God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden? In other words, he makes God small and mean and narrow-minded. And then he denies the truth. The term we use was he salves our conscience. But I really would change that now to denies our truth. He says, you surely won't die. God's threats don't matter. And then he'll beautify sin. Because in the days you eat of it, you'll be just like him. And if you take any sin, take Adam and Eve out of the garden and take any sin, most of us can walk through that. Tell me if it doesn't sound familiar. We're not really sure if we should or shouldn't, or maybe we are. Then we start to think about why God's going to deny us this pleasure. And then we say, well, he loves us and he's going to forgive us if I say I'm sorry. And then we conclude with, it's worth it because it feels good. It's exactly what happened in the garden. And Eve abandoned her trust. She knew what God said. She changed what God said. She added a part to it that made her look good. And then she simply disobeyed. And then where was Adam in all of this? Blindly sitting by being an oaf. He wasn't questioning anything. So what did we learn from that about sin? Three things. These are probably the most important things I think we need to remember about, and it's, it'll explain why we're in the condition we're in. Sin creates shame, fear, and blame. This is what the Bible talks about in many points in Scripture. The Psalms are great illustrations of this. Shame, fear, and blame. Shame, they realized they were naked. Fear, they hid themselves from God. And blame, it was never their fault. Everybody passed the buck. But what did we learn about God when he walked into the garden? I don't, I'm, I'm really curious if this stuck with you because I was hoping it would. God came in, true or false, he cursed two of the three participants. False. He cursed all three. Okay. Which curse... Or, Of the three, which one received no grace of the three? Serpent, Adam, Eve. Serpent received no grace. What does that tell us about God? Who should have received grace? None of them. But he offered it to Adam and Eve. Why? They were made in his image. Which tells you something about God. You're coming, I can't believe he curses. No, no, time out. He should have destroyed them. But what did he choose to do? He began instantaneously to redeem them from the curse that he put on them because they disobeyed him. He didn't curse them because they disobeyed. He said, if you do this, there'll be a curse. And they did it anyway. So instead of coming in and going, you know, stew in your own juices, God came down and said, there's a curse on you and I'm going to fix it. And I hope you see the beauty of God at the end of that chapter. Because if you don't, we've mispresented it. That's a good, you know, I know it's a song now, but it's a great phrase. He's a good, good father. He came in and said, yeah, I know you did this. And 
It's one of those that one time I did something that was going to cost my dad a lot of money and his response was, I'm so mad at you right now, I could spit blood. I'll never forget that moment. It's like, wow. And he looks at me and goes, just go home, don't tell your mom. It's like, I love that guy. <laughs> He's like, I got it, just don't tell your mom. I was like, man, he was mad. And he had a right to be. It wasn't like I did anything illegal, I just was, it was thoughtless. And it was going to cost him cash. He's like, I got it. And I thought of that moment a lot when I studied Genesis going, man, I never saw God that way until I got older. So part five was judgment. And this is where um, God, this is Cain and Abel, remember? That does God earn and demand a response to our choices? Do we live in a world that denies that truth? Yeah. If you have a God who took the globe, I believe the term used to be a deist, right? God created the world. He just spun it. And he stood back and he said, until it stops spinning, I'm going to leave it alone. And the deist, and some of our, I know this is awkward, but some of our founding fathers were definitely deists. And, and that doesn't mean they were wrong. That, or they were wrong about that. It doesn't mean they were bad. But they believed that God just spun the world and left it alone. And yet, so they say that your behavior has no real morals to it. If, you, if you're punished in this lifetime, you're punished in this lifetime, but there's really no residual effect. What does Genesis 4 tell us? When we rebel against God, he will expect a response from every one of us. That's why that passage in scripture that horrifies me, every word spoken will be repeated before the throne of God. I don't know if that means literally or if that means in the moment God knew your thoughts and your actions and your words, which is frightening because I've said a lot of things I hope no one ever heard. So you have this moment where God demanded a response from Cain. Do you remember Cain's response when God asked him what happened? Am I my brother's keeper? And what's the answer? Absolutely. For the rest of your life, you are. You were created for community. Remember, we we're created for relationships, not independent living. And so we have that. So our response will bring either forgiveness through repentance or it'll bring judgment. So Cain was given a chance. I want you to remember that when you read the story of Cain and Abel. Cain was given a chance to repent. In fact, I think it said sin is waiting outside the door. So God didn't come down and say, God said, I know what you're going to do, and there's an opportunity for you not to do it. And I wonder sometimes, the, the percentage of my sin where I knew that what I was about to do was wrong, and I still did it. Because it was like, no, no, the, the lie is that it's not that big of a deal, and God's, God's asking too much of you, and you can just forgive, be forgiven later. But Genesis 4 teaches us the principle of God's forgiveness. It also teaches us the value of life. It teaches us the punishment of death. And it also talks to us about the hope of the afterlife. And we addressed that that particular week. Then we got to part six, which was salvation. This is where we're at the story of Noah and the ark. And some principles we want to learn from that is God saves those who obey by faith. God saves those who obey by faith. He doesn't just save people who believe by faith. Using the English translation of the word believe. Mental assent. Noah had to build a what? If Noah believed he had to build an ark, but didn't build an ark, what would have happened to Noah? He'd be dead and we wouldn't be here. Faith requires action, not just understanding. 
And I fear in, in America where it's been, well, at the age of nine, I believed at church camp. Now I'm just going to go live my independent life. And at the end of it, God has to be good to me like there's some contract. I want us to be really, really cautious of that. The guy who tells us how to build an ark and gave us all the equipment to build the ark, we ought to build the ark. And part of it is not the obedience. It's not my obedience that saves me. It's my obedience opens me up to the things God gave me that saved me. Jesus being the ark. The, the whole imagery Peter uses of that. So Noah had faith. Noah built an ark. Noah believed God. Noah lived. And then, you know, it's, it's a good preaching point for those of us who like things tidy. Noah did exactly what he was told, and he did it completely. If he'd have taken one shortcut, and if he'd have done it his way rather than God's way, they'd have drowned. So we learned what about salvation? Salvation requires our faith, and how is our faith demonstrated? By obedience. Now, we've used this hook for at least the eight years I've been here, and that doesn't mean I came up with it. In fact, Gary Hawes is the originator of it, and I'm indebted to him because it's, it's ended a lot of arguments. We spend way too much time, I think, at least I have in ministry, arguing with people about, do I have to do this? Do I have to do that? Do I have to do this? And Gary Hawes used to always smile at college kids. He he was the developer of all the campus ministries in Michigan in our brotherhood. Gary started them all at Michigan State University, and then he planted them in every state university in Michigan. He's just the common day apostle Paul. I know the state of Missouri had Roy Weiss. Well, we had Gary Hawes. And Gary used to tell college students every time, they're like, do I have to do this? Do I have to tithe? Do I have to be baptized? Do I have to go to church? Do I have to read my Bible? Gary's response every single time was, you don't have to. You get to. And until it becomes a get to, it's not worship. And that startled me as a 22-year-old in ministry. If they, A, I'm going to steal that line, and B, it's correct. Salvation comes by those who get in on what God lets them do. So when we ask the question, do I have to do this? We're asking the wrong fundamental question. Should I do this? Is the way you like to pose it. So, I talked too long. I'm like, iPad reset. It must be done with me. Okay, so we talked about Noah and then John, how do you say John's last name? Kerr? John came in when uh, uh, I was in Japan and he talked to us a lot about covenant and he talked about the blessing of covenant. And uh, I sure appreciated his teaching and he, and he sent his notes to be able to chop up into bite-sized pieces and, and I don't know what he would pull out of this, but I'm going to pull my reaction out of it. Uh, that the blessing came to the imperfect Noah and his sons. And that imperfection God has been dealing with forever. God knew that from the beginning with Adam and Eve, that their imperfection could cost the simplicity of his plan, but he allowed that imperfection. So you have the story of Noah and his sons and how the nations would come from Ham, uh, Shem, and Japheth. And we talked a little bit about them last week as well. But the whole uh, process of the blessing and the covenant. And a covenant is a relationship not between two equals, but it's two people who give their heart to each other. A covenant's different than a contract. I know Michael's taught a lot about that for us here. Back when we first did the Worldview series a couple of falls ago, I know Michael talked a lot about covenant and what that word means. But covenant is what a marriage is. If marriage becomes a legal document, a lawyer can break it. If a marriage becomes a covenant, it becomes something that it's hard to be broken. It's the giving of oneself and the commitment of oneself. 
And then last week we talked, and I'll be brief with this, we talked about man's idolatry as seen in the Tower of Babel. How man was going to get to God and build a monument where the whole world would say, look how phenomenal they were. I made a comment about the Aztecs. And if you go down and you see what's in, in, uh, in Mexico and Central America and so forth, and you see what was built back when they didn't have the hydraulics and the equipment we have today. And um, one of you sent me a very awesome email Thursday morning. And they said, you didn't even mention this, which, of course, I was like, bring it. And they said, you didn't even mention the fact that nobody knows the name of the architect that the Aztecs used. I thought, that's a great line. We remember what they did, but do we know who did it? History doesn't record us. Theodore Roosevelt always had this line, though. He said, Roosevelt said, history has never remembered a name that did not pay a great price to be remembered. So we look at, we're going to build a tower, and all these men are saying, we're going to build this tower, and the world's going to see it, and they're going to remember us, and we're going to make our mark. And does anybody know who those men were? Does anybody remember their names? Did the editors of the book of Genesis record who they were? Did they get what they wanted? Yeah, they're famous. What are they famous for? Futility. (laughs) And for arrogance. So we know their mistake. We don't remember their great triumph. And God confused voices, and God sent them to all parts of the earth to fulfill the earth, and that was a blessing. Remember we talked about that last week, and I want that to resound. You may say that giving them different languages... And taking away their ability to communicate effectively and cleanly. That it dispersed them throughout the globe. But don't forget the blessing of the globe. God didn't send them out there like he sent them into a timeout. You go to Siberia and think about that. He didn't do that. He sent them into Europe, into Asia, and to the the Americas. He sent them into Australia. He sent them into Africa. He sent them throughout the globe because that was the blessing he wanted them to have. And if the communication was hard, eh. You look at it, it's worth it. And of course, I equate everything to food, so we talked about that last week, if you remember. Think of the foods we have from regions of the world we wouldn't have had if we'd been sitting around the Tower of Babel thinking how awesome we were. So what does that learn? Man's idolatry will always be our greatest challenge. Do we want what God wants for us, or do we want God to get in on what we want for us? And this has been the challenge that, uh, and Michael will address where we're going next semester, because it'll fit right into that whole spot. So you always do this to me, Slick. I'm going to do it to you. Would you help welcome Michael to stage? If I'm skinny and slick, I wonder what I get to call Mark. You know what I mean? (laughs) He's looking good, actually. You probably noticed. Okay, so um, I want to talk a little bit. I want to try to save some time. I appreciated the summary, and uh, Mark and I both hope to have a little bit of Q&A time with us. So what he asked me to do was to come up after the general summary of talking back through some of these things and to ask the question, so from our standpoint, what are we learning about the life of faith um, from Genesis 1 through 11? What are some like focal points or major markers that we can pull away from the text that when it comes to this thing we have to do, which is ultimately leave this place and go about the course of our lives, 
what are some, some touch points from this text that are relevant to us? And of course, I'm not going to get super, super specific, but I do hope to talk about some of the general things we see here that are relevant to all of those specifics. So the question that I asked after we talked was, if we were to try to like, figure out what does it mean to be a spiritual person or to, or to practice spirituality from this text, what would be some of the things we would say, this is definitely a critical part of that. And I believe you have five in your notes. I'm going to add one. I was going to try to squeeze it under one of the ones I have, but we're going to go with an additional one. It'll be 3.5. So if you're following along there, you can uh, fill in those blanks. If you're taking notes on something else, you can just write these down. They'll be short. Each of them are just three words. And uh, some of it he just covered well after already having covered this, this semester quite well. So I'll just mention them. The first one I think that we get from, uh, from, um, from this uh, section of scripture with, uh, with regard to the life of faith is the greatness of God. It always starts there. I, do, I, I, I love the statement you made, Mark, that, that if we just locked in Genesis 1-1, uh, it's, I mean, I don't know of a more important statement about God, just as, you sh- just as you said. And for the practice of our faith, to remember that we exist because he made us for him rather than he exists because we made him for us is the fundamental starting point for a life of wisdom and I think a life of wholeness, I think a life of sanity, I think a life of, of being able to excel in the things that we're made to excel in without bearing the pressure of being perfect or always accomplishing more after more after more. I think we find ourselves in all sorts of cycles that can all eventually be traced back to. Anytime life is so chaotic, like beyond, not just chaotic because the world is, is what it is, but, but anytime we find ourselves borderline overwhelmed with what's going on around us or inside of us, the probably starting point of what went wrong, whether in our actions or those of someone around us, is they didn't start with God. They started with themselves instead. So the greatness of God, I do think, is the starting point for faith. If you want your faith to grow, the answer is not think about your faith. The answer is think about what your faith is in, God. The point is not to have great faith. The point is even small faith is fine because we we believe in a great God. And so we always have to remind ourselves that even when it comes to the point in time when we're talking about us, when we're talking about what we do, we begin that portion with God. The greatness of God is the starting point for all of these things. He is. We've talked about some of the attributes like self-existence and and power and grace. Another way to talk about what Scripture reveals in God is to look at the titles. And when I look at this text of Scripture, of course, he's our creator which says all sorts of things about him. He's our sustainer, which, which again says all sorts of things about his wisdom and his power and his love. He is our judge uh, and he is our redeemer. Those are the things that stand out for me. So the important thing is not so much you grab my specifics, but that you continue to be a person who reflects on God, who thinks about God. I think even, uh, even recent findings in neuroscience are demonstrating the actual practical, tangible, we can see it in our lives value of thinking true thoughts about God. Uh, number two, so we have the goodness of God, Secondly, we, or greatness of God, excuse me. Secondly, we have the goodness of creation. This is something that some people assume uh, this, some people assume the opposite. I just want to mention it so that we can all assume this, and that is that this stuff, some, touch something physical around you, it can be your hand, it can be your your spouse, it can be the chair, whatever, like a book, physical, like material, nice, material, physical stuff is good. Now in in the ancient, in in certain dimensions, certain parts of the ancient Greek world, and this, this thought tradition is not just old, it's made its way into our thinking and it's made its way into the church is that everything physical is bad. It's really the spiritual stuff that matters. We find ourselves thinking in these ways. Sometimes we begin to take God and a life of faith seriously. We think, oh, it's all about the spiritual stuff. And that's half true. The truth is that spiritual things matter. By that we mean everything having to do with God matters. 
but it's, it's wrong in, in that it denies that this stuff has something to do with God. We, are, we were never made to float around on clouds as bodiless beings who aren't earthy and gritty and physical. We we're made to be physical and earthy and gritty. Like this is a part of God's good world. The things that you see, you should assume until proven otherwise, are good creations that God has given for our joy and for our, um, for our cultivation and for his glory. So the goodness of creation is the second piece. And that flows directly into the third one, which is the value of work. I hope you've heard us talk about that. Because I find this to be one of the most critical things that, that we can hold on to and believe in that enables us to actually do life with God every single day. No matter what you do for a living, whether you work for a bank or a school or a garbage company or the city or a church, a lot of what you do in your day doesn't necessarily feel like spiritual or God-centered. And sometimes we tell ourselves, well, I, mean, I shouldn't be wasting my time with this. What I should really be doing is going over here and fill in the blank, reading my Bible, telling somebody about Jesus, whatever. And I love all of those things, for the record. Yes, if the Spirit tells you to do them, do them. But what I want to do is to actually back up and say what you were doing before was also part of your life with God. If you're looking for a tiny book to read uh, over the Christmas break, look up this book called The Practice of the Presence of God. The title is about as long as the book itself. It seriously would fit in your back pocket. The Practice of the Presence of God. You can find a free Kindle copy or like one for maybe 99 cents or something on Amazon. It's by Brother Lawrence is, 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 is the name of the author. It's written by this, uh, this guy who was a monk, but he wasn't a very good monk. <laughs> he was actually the dishwasher for this monastery. And the whole book is all about um, just this exercise in trying to become fully aware of God's presence and blessing on us all the time. And what he found is that there was no difference between the times he set aside to pray and the times when he was doing the dishes. And if this guy can, you know, feel God's presence while he's doing the dishes for a bunch of monks, we can feel God's presence when we're doing anything. So the value of work that God has given us work is a good thing to cultivate the fruitfulness of this world that he's made, to take the basic ingredients that are provided in creation and to put them together to make things like microphones and clothing and, and uh, you know, cool-looking floors and comfortable chairs and all of those other things. We, we're doing what God put us to do, put us here to do when we work. To work is not to do something unspiritual. To work is to do something holy. So when you go to your jobs, recognize that God goes with you and he's smiling upon you and you are fulfilling his will for your life and working hard. Uh, This, I was going to put this, put this next one under this point, but I do want to separate it out. So this be 3.5 and I want to call it the place of marriage. So again, in keeping with our three word thing, the place of marriage. Marriage is, um, is, and I won't hit it hard because we, we talked about it a few different times, but what you see in Genesis is that if you want to understand what marriage is, you have to look at its place within creation. And if you just start with it without the, without the framework for a biblical view of marriage, then the specific commands about marriage actually won't make any logical sense because you won't have any real basis for suggesting, for instance, that certain behaviors are only appropriate within the context of marriage and that marriage can only be defined in certain ways. We remember that within the, within the, prog, within the, within the um, design of creation, the place of marriage is for it to be this relationship where two things that are similar to one another but different. We're both humans, but one's male, one's female. Similar but different. Complementary parts come together in peaceful union so as to produce and sustain new life and continue the project of bearing God's image throughout the world. That's the place of marriage. So God designed it for a specific function within his good world. 
And as the one who designed it, he, of course, defines what it is and what it's for. And if you understand what Genesis tells us about the place of marriage, then uh, some of the other specifics that the scriptures consistently teach from start to finish will make, I think, a lot better sense. Number four, uh, the reality of sin. This is the negative. Everything has been great so far. The greatness of God, the goodness of creation, the value of work, the place of marriage. Had sin never taken place, this would be the end of the story, and we just go about our business. But sin did take place. As he just talked about, sin is this act of rebellion against God. The primary dimensions of, of sin that I see in the book of Genesis are uh, the, you know, the rebellion, uh, corruption, and judgment. There's this act of rebellion, which even if there are these deeper dimensions under the surface, and it probably is true that it begins with this disbelief in God or failure to trust in God, but it manifests itself initially in, I'm going to rebel against my creator. I'm going to challenge his status as the one who is above me, so I rebel. And this process of rebellion doesn't turn out the way I thought because I expected it would make my life and world better, but in the end it makes it worse. We've all experienced this on our own hearts and minds and lives and families and workplaces and schools and societies. We decided to do things our own way, and as a result, we made the place worse than we found it. Uh, Corruption takes place. And then God, being the, the holy and loving God that he is, judges that sin. He doesn't just overlook it, he judges it. And he curses it, and he punishes it. Does he, does, is he gracious in this? Of course he is. But first of all, we have to reckon with the reality of sin and therefore of judgment. And I use reality intentionally here, by the way. I almost left that word uh, blank so you'd have to write it in. Just circle the word reality. Because I'm not talking about some sort of a social construct of what happens to feel right and wrong today. I'm saying that in our world, there's a reality called sin. This fact that we have looked at God and actually not done his will. And therefore, you see what you see when you look out in our world today. If we don't reckon with the reality of sin, you won't be able to make sense of any particular day in anyone's given life. Because we live in a world that has been tainted by sin. So again, we got the greatness of God, the goodness of creation, the value of work, then our 3.5, the place of marriage, then number four, the reality of sin, and then number five, this is the last one I want to talk about just briefly, which will lead into a preview of next semester, is um, the basis for hope. If sin was the last word, I don't know, I wouldn't want to study the book. I'd probably just want to deny it and go eat, drink, and be merry, I guess. I mean, at the end of the day, if sin is the final word that is stated in Genesis 1 through 11, then, then, then there is no happy ending. There is no redemption of all these things that have gone wrong. And what's interesting about the book of Genesis is that Genesis 1 through 11, the first major section, it ends with a question mark. Where does it go from here? How's this thing going to be back together again? The whole Noah experiment didn't work. We tried to separate all the bad guys from the good guys and start over with the good guys, but it turns out the good guys were also bad guys. Where are we going to go from here? What's going to happen to God's promise to bless the world? That's the question that hangs over the book of Genesis. Is there any basis for our hope? And the book of Genesis so far has suggested to us that yes, in that basis is this God of grace and mercy, that he won't give up on creation, that he'll keep trying to bless, that he won't ever stop moving this mission forward. So that's the promise that comes out of Genesis 1 through 11, but it's a very undefined promise, and it leaves us at the end with the question mark. At the end of Genesis 1 through 11, everybody's been scattered, and now they're all in multiple places continuing this process of sin and corruption, and the question is, where do we go from here? Because God made humankind to bless them and to multiply through them and to, 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 to spread his image and his kingdom throughout the world. So what happens next? And uh, we'll, we'll, we'll um, Mark, you can start making your way back up here. This, um, this is precisely where the rest of Genesis takes us. Genesis 1 through 11, as we've just defined it, lays the foundation. 
And then Genesis 12 through 50 becomes God's uh, reflection or his inspired reflections on the question, what will happen to God's promise to bless? I don't know if you've ever read the rest of Genesis. If you've not, I encourage you to read it. And I'm going to warn you, there's some really weird stuff in it. Uh, There's some really stupid things that the heroes do. And if you've ever read it, then you know these people make for strange heroes. Abraham, he's cool some of the time, except when he's lying about his wife being a sister twice. Isaac, he's cool some of the time. Jacob, he's, I mean, I guess we're supposed to say he's cool, but he's kind of actually not very cool at all most of the time. And then, you know, it goes from there. And so what we're going to discover is that these stories throughout the rest of Genesis, if they're read as moral examples of how you and I are supposed to live, are really bad moral examples of how you and I are supposed to live. But if the point of this book is not so much look at these great people, but as we discussed in our shadow series as a church last couple of months, look at this great God, then we've got something to learn. And so if you feel like Genesis 1 through 11 has given you some good starting points, but ultimately leaves you hanging, awesome. That's what it's supposed to do. Come back next semester. And we're going to talk about Genesis 12 through 50. And then from that point, we'll just continue on through the Old Testament until when, well, either until our voices give out or Jesus returns, one of the two. So those are some summarizing thoughts about Genesis 1 through 11 from a big picture overview and also with respect to what it means to live out a life of faith from this portion of Scripture. Now, I think uh, we have, we, okay, good, we saved a little bit of time, a decent bit of time, actually, to take some questions and answers. So my rear end is vibrating. I assume that's because you guys are sending questions my way. I don't know. Oh, no, that's other family stuff. So you must have the questions. All right. So um, uh, what do we got? You've got some questions, I take it. Keep sending them in as we go. And don't say anything about my rear end vibrating, all right? Just leave that alone. You got me uncomfortable is what you got me. Uh, Okay, just kind of pick these up as we come through. Could you give an example? This is one of the questions. Can you give an example of other theology that uses these eight topics? Let Let me answer that by not answering it. Let me redirect. I think what we want you to understand is To interpret any New Testament theology, you have to go back to who God is as defined by God from the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis. Then you know whether or not the doctrine you're alluding to or your interpretation is fair. The Bible interprets itself. It's the first hermeneutic understanding. And hermeneutics is just a fancy academic term for the the way you interpret a text. The first hermeneutical principle is the Bible interprets itself. It does not have contradiction. So when people come and present an image of God, for instance, and let me just hit the controversial one of the past decade, there is no hell. Some popular celebrity preachers came out and said they don't believe there's a hell. They don't believe God could send you to hell. Well, here's how we use what we've learned. Go back to Genesis 1 through 11 and answer yourself the question. Did Cain get judged? Was Cain punished fully after being warned by God he would be? So then how do you turn it around and say that there is no hell? See, if you understand the basic tenets and building blocks of who God is, who we are, what the world is, these principles Michael talked about, then you can, you can discern what, what the Bible's consistent teaching on something is. Now, when I bring up hell, it makes me really uncomfortable because there's a side of the world that thinks we preachers need hell to have a job. No, no, no. Hell is the motivation for me to do what I do so that people understand it doesn't have to be your destiny. Because God, the God of Genesis 1 through 11, is a God of grace and mercy and kindness, and we broke it, and he says, don't tell your mom, I'll cover it. So does that make sense? I hope I'm answering the question of the person who asked. And every, everything that you're taught, you can go back throughout the Bible and let it interpret itself. 
and find out, okay, these things, uh, things seem to be at odds. How do I handle that? What do you want to add or subtract? So, so, I mean, let me, just one specific thing. So take the idea of dominion, which is this word that helps us understand what it means to be made in God's image. To be made in God's image means that you are made to rule on his behalf. That's what that statement would have meant in the ancient world. So human beings have been made in the image of God, which means we are to extend his kingdom throughout the world. That's the basic meaning, the first meaning of of what it means to be made in his image. Then you come over to um, the the New Testament and you have uh, Colossians 1 saying that Christ is the image of God. You might look at that and say, hey, cool, he's one of us. Actually, no, there's a difference. Because in Genesis it says that we are made in the image of God or after the image of God. And in Colossians 1, Paul says that Christ is the image of God. Which, first of all, does mean that Christ shows us what God is like. It also means that in Christ we see what we were always meant to be. That he is the, the model and he's the template and we're the ones, we're the mm. patterned copies of him. Interestingly enough, also, you then go over to the Gospels, which describe his actual ministry, centered on the bringing of what? The kingdom of God. So God is becoming king in and through Jesus' ministry. Jesus' actual mission is to establish and extend God's kingdom throughout the world. And you start to recognize that the purpose for which we were made, which is revealed to us in Genesis, and which we messed up, God then fixed by sending his son as the redeemer to finish what we were supposed to have started. So this is the beauty of, uh, so Romans 5 is, a, is that Romans 5, 12 through 21 contrasts Adam and Jesus. And it doesn't just say Adam was lame, Jesus is cool. It doesn't just say what Adam went, you know, did wrong, Jesus, Jesus fixed. It does say that, but it says more. It says what went wrong in Adam was more than put right in Jesus. Because it's like this, Adam started as, at an account of zero, and he was told that he's supposed to make it to $10,000. By the time he got finished, he was at negative $10,000. And then the world continued to make things even worse. So Jesus comes on the scene at negative $100,000, but makes his way back not only to zero, but forward beyond what Adam ever reached. Do you understand that? It's a weird analogy. Do you understand what I'm saying? That's what I think Romans 5, 12 through 21 is saying. That what Adam, what Adam messed up, God came and solved. Not just getting us back to a point where Adam was, but on forward to what Adam was supposed to become. He was always designed to become what was revealed in Jesus. Jesus has now shown us what that looks like. So that'd just be the first one yeah. that comes to mind for me of where we see some of these specific points of, of uh, thinking and teaching and theology working themselves out. So the even scriptures. if you go back to what we were made to be, one of the things that sticks in my mind, I was taught in my Genesis class in college 100 years ago, was that everything that was shattered by sin, all the punishments that were given, the curses, I guess is a better term, given by God, you can find in the Gospels an example of Jesus resetting every single one of them. Nature, demons, uh, illness, death, he reset. Uh, so what triggered that was your comment that not only did Jesus show us what we could have been, he, show, he showed us who God was by the way he lived. And Bill Hybel says in his book, Courageous Leadership, that the, the strength of Jesus' entire ministry was his relationship with his father. It wasn't his supernatural power. Because notice, every time Jesus spent a season with God or an evening with God or a night with God, all night long, he came back and something big was asked of him. And he lived in that relationship, which takes you back to Adam and Eve in the garden with God, right? And when he walked with them, remember we sang that? He walked with me and he talked with me. And that whole environment, when sin happened, God came down. Where were Adam and Eve? Hiding in the bushes. So the whole restoration of Jesus here, there was no hiding. He, he pursued God. God pursued him. 
We have several questions here, and, and this is going to be, the answer is going to be conjecture, so I'll beat Michael to the punch. We're going to give you our opinions on it, but I wouldn't, uh, yeah, it's not going to be an entrance test into heaven. This first question is uh, posed really well, and I just dimmed my screen. This getting old's overrated, Michael. Okay, God dispersed us in our conversation last week. God dispersed us and confused our language. Is it possible Uh, He created the different skin tones and different faiths, so we understand we need to overcome communication, physical appearance, different faiths to come to understand that we need to accept each other as he accepts us. A secondary question to that is, did race differences happen after the Tower of Babel? Man, good question. So I think there's two two very importantly distinct questions happening here. One is the diversity of races. The other is the diversity of faiths or beliefs. The diversity of races, I think, is, is very easy to see built into the, to the, to the, to the fabric of creation. In the same way that it takes, um, you know, different, no two, I've always found it fascinating that no two people look alike. Even twins, ultimately there are differences. When you think about the amount of people there are in the world, it's just pretty astoundingly crazy that we could all actually look different from one another. And um, in particular, you, you know, or not in particular, but also you look at different races, and I think in the same regard, uh, we, no one race is particularly blessed by God. If you wanted to argue that one race was blessed by God, you probably have to argue that it was some sort of a Middle Eastern race, these kind of things. So skin tones have always, the, the plan was always for them to be different as a way of manifesting diversity. Um, so if we mean by race, like skin color, then it was always part of the plan. It's not a result of the fall. It was always part of the beauty of creation. Um, just like, again, people look different in different ways. Skin tone is one of those ways. Like race, in terms of what we call it, it's hard to know precisely what you mean by that. So if, it is, if it's like, again, skin color is easy answer. If you mean like ethnicity, then that's this combination of skin color and also like geographical boundaries, right? Um, so you could have different cultures because you grew up on the other side of a fake line. Geographic boundaries. Pol- I remember one of my favorite books on, on politics and theology starts with this phrase, politics is an act of the imagination. There is actually no line between America and Canada. There is no line between Arkansas and Missouri. So we've organized ourselves in ways that are a combination of how it was supposed to be and yet also not exactly how it was supposed to be, which leads to various tensions. I probably said enough on that. When it comes to the faiths, I don't think it's the same thing as God making many different faiths. I think you have many different faiths because God made us to reach out for him in relationship. Like he just said, this is revealed in Jesus. We live in dependence on him. God made us to live in dependence on him. And yet because of the rebellious act of the first humans, um, everything we now experience comes to us in corrupted form. So we're now distant from God. And, uh, and yet there's this part of our hearts and souls that reaches out for God. I, I must find something that transcends my own self. And so you have the birth of what we call religion. And what you're going to see as we study the rest of Genesis is that the plan God chose and stuck with from Genesis 12 to the end of Revelation is, here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to divide the world up into good guys and bad guys and try to start with the good guys because I just did this Noah thing to show that that doesn't work. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to focus myself in on one man and his family with the express intent that I reveal myself and my will to this man and his family in such a way that they become the vehicle of my blessing, eventually extending out into the entire world, into the entire earth. So God did leave, at some level, others to believe, have truths about him, while he worked patiently with this one family to come to an understanding of the truth about him. And this actually then becomes our calling, to fast forward things very quickly. 
So God made this promise to Abraham and his family, then to the people of Israel, which was ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And then those who put their faith in Jesus become a part of this now diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic, multi-racial family who then have the same task of taking this blessing of God out to the ends of the earth. So I, I may be, like, that may be both more and less than you wanted from that question. I'm not exactly sure, but those would be some of the things I think about with respect to it. Now, what if... Ham, Shem, and Japheth, the three sons of uh, Noah, what if one was black, one was white, and one was light brown? Why do we always assume they were white, blue-eyed? Why does Jesus Senior picture in everyone, you had it up there, you know, class of 18, Jerusalem High, there's a picture of Jesus, man, he looks lily white and blue-eyed, and thinking, wow, I know who painted that. Why, why did the three children of Noah have to be one distinct pigment. If you can open your mind up to the possibility that 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 is the way it was and those three men refilled the earth after the flood, I, I don't have nearly the problem I would have had with that 35 years ago. But I look at it and say, it's just another one of the possibilities because when you strip the skin color off and the dialects away, we all have the same DNA. We all have the same uh, cell builds. We all have the same internal organs. You know, there's not a, a race of people with three, three legs. And so I'm, I'm making not fun of the argument. What I'm trying to point out is we have these presumptions that the scriptures don't give us the right to hold on to. It, when, you can, when you can take the Bible and turn it into the law of bigotry, where the KKK can take the Bible as their guide... We need to remember to go back to Genesis and understand how God sees mankind so then we see mankind the same way. Does that make sense? So this is this whole thing. You keep, keep pushing everyone back to the building blocks. What do we know about God? What has God told us about himself? Has that consistently played out? And absolutely. Uh, Michael, this one's for you. <laughs> Leave your father and mother. Adam and Eve did not have one. What do you think about that statement from their perspective? <laughs> nice. That's a great question. I've literally never thought about that. That is awesome. So, um, I mean, I've told you guys a couple of times, so I don't mind saying it again. I think there are various clues. Now, on the one hand, I'll answer it two ways. I will answer it um, if, if the text is meant to be taken with, uh, like, li- as literally, as a literal six-day creation, literal, all these various things. And that is obviously one of the ways in which Christians have faithfully read the text. If that is the case, then the reason that statement in there is not because they had a father and mother, but rather because this is God's opening statement about how marriage is supposed to work. And he knows that from that point on, husbands and wives will have fathers and mothers that they will have to leave in order to produce children or in order to establish their own homes. I've actually always thought it was really interesting that the man leaves his father and mother and united to his wife, which is fascinating. Um, when, I mean, obviously, when you just think about family dynamics, also, even in a patriarchal culture, he is the one who is to leave and cleave. Now, she is too. Both are, but specifically says the man. Anyway, well, can, I, this, can you hold that? Yes. Because my mother will tell you, as the mother of four boys, mm-hmm. that we all left and went to our wife's families. Yeah. Yeah. And she feels like she got ripped off. So that when she had granddaughters, she felt like she's going to win again one day. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's inherent. And I just, I mean, honestly, that, that, that well, yeah, yeah, enough on that. Yeah. Yes, indeed. The other thing I want to say, though, to the question is, I've, like I said, this is the thing I've said to you guys a couple of times before. I think there are a lot of details in these stories that may serve as indicators that we shouldn't take this with wooden literalism. That what we're describing here are real, actual events, but that we're not describing them in literal, precise 
every detail as exactly it happened. If you were watching on a video camera, this is what it would look like kind of way. Now, what I'm really nervous of in saying that is that this perspective often gets lumped in with people who have a low view of the truthfulness and the authority of Scripture, which I don't. I believe that Scripture is the infallible, inerrant, inspired, authoritative, fully trustworthy, fully sufficient Word of God. So my doctrine of Scripture, is I'll put it up against anybody's. This is not me trying to sort of skate out under from Scripture's authority. I am not embarrassed about the Bible. And if the Bible clearly says something uh, that contradicts whatever, then I'm going to go not with whatever. You understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But I do think that the texts themselves train us to think well about what's going on in the texts themselves. And a question such as this is a great example. Other examples might be, so where is it that, you know, when, when Cain was sent into exile, he was afraid that other people would put him to death. Who are these other people of which he speaks? Because so far, all we've been introduced to is Adam, Eve, Seth, or not Seth yet, but Cain and Abel. So again, lots of details which to me serve as indicators that at the very least, you don't have to read this with wooden literalism. Um, and and may in fact be, it may in fact be better read along the lines of, again, actual real events, but not a literal description of those events. Is that fair? Yes, sir. I get, I get myself in trouble today. No, you're good. Okay. One of the uh, last questions we got here is uh, that hasn't been alluded to in other answers is, uh, and I'm going to re-summarize it from the way it was faced. Is there something wrong with us uh, believing we're going to heaven? Is there, is there anything lacking faith to have certainty? And the answer to that is yes and no. So let me explain. It, yes, there is a problem with it if you have based your certainty on God's provisions, on your accomplishments. It's not wrong if you're basing it on what Jesus said. A friend of mine, uh, I'd like to call him a friend, and he might disagree, but let's just say that. A friend of mine is, has his PhD in science, and he teaches, he's a preacher, and he teaches at Ohio State University. And while he was lecturing, one of his students got on his bio page and found out he was a pastor. So in the class, raised his hand and said, you're a preacher. How can you be a preacher and a scientist? And this lecturer stopped his argument and said, well, why would you think that's a contradiction? And he said, tell me what you think of preachers. And so they started giving him terms like dogmatic, closed-minded, ignorant. And he wrote them all up on the board. And he said, so you don't think I can teach science if I'm these things? And they said, yeah. And he said, do you think preachers are these things? He said, yeah, why? Because you think there's only one way to heaven. And his his term was, if these things, you think about me, okay? If if that's because I believe there's one way in heaven, the only way I'm not these things is if I'm right. And he said, the entire PhD level class just shut down. He said, because I have evidence to believe that Jesus is the only way because of the resurrection of Christ, and he got to explain the gospel. And he said, the student came up in tears and apologized for trying to take him out in front of everyone. But, But listen to the argument he made. If what you're believing in is correct, you're not dogmatic and pig-headed. You're actually gracious because you're trying to tell people the only way to salvation is through the resurrected one, not through being better. So the question is, is it wrong for me to have certainty about going to heaven? Absolutely not if Jesus told you you're going. If the reason you're going is because you're better than somebody else, that's the flaw. Does that make sense? So the answer is always yes and no. Well, what we want you to understand is God has revealed enough about who he is and his plan for us, for us to have certainty. But it takes faith to have that certainty. You're not going to get every box checked. You're not going to have every answer. Who did Cain and Abel marry? 
all makes our skin crawl because we view it with the cultural eyes we have. So as Michael said, there are some, I, I'm going to be careful. If I use the word gaps, I'm going to get written up on a blog somewhere. If there are some pieces that God's left unknown to us, but he's given us enough to trust him, hasn't he? That's why when you have controversy and contradiction in arguments or discussions or dialogue with people of faith, it's, it's good to remember the Bible interprets itself. Go back to the beginning, found yourself on these truths, and then go together and seek unity on these things. Because we're not going to agree on the salt and pepper issues. How you season your meal is different than how I season mine. But we can agree on the meat and the potatoes and the basics that matter. Who is God? Who is Christ? Why do we need saved? And how did he go about doing that? And several others I don't have time to bring up. Well, the good news is you get Michael next semester. It'll happen in January. You'll begin to hear some announcements uh, from our uh, adult education area about signing up for Michael's class. The reason we ask you to do this, especially for some of you that are new here, is the room that we, we go to depends on how many people are coming. So if we have five people sign up for a class and 55 show up because they didn't pre-register, then we're bouncing around that first Wednesday. So when you see signups, we just encourage you, look through the slate of classes that are offered, pick one that scratches an itch you have, and uh, let us know you're coming, and that allows us to use the rooms well and, uh, and you know, put people where we get the most uh, comfortable uh, settings. Appreciate your participation this semester. It's been an encouragement to both of us. We've enjoyed uh, teaching this, and, and you've been a fun group and participatory. And uh, to have three Q&As and you all showed up, that's amazing. This church is changing. This is really good. Let me have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for your truth. And if Michael and I have led in a direction that is away from that, God, correct us, please. Because really what we want to do is shine the light on you and Jesus and the work that you've done on our behalf and to give people the hope that you have revealed to us your will and that we can be a part of it. We can build your kingdom so that everyone knows who you are and receives the gift of grace that we've received. Thank you for this uh, group. Thank you for their time tonight. Uh, I pray that you give them good rest as they prepare themselves for tomorrow, uh, that they may serve you well as we all serve you to the best of our ability. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.